Let's do it. You ready? Arizona. Yeah, you know it, boys. You know it. Welcome to a Saturday night right here in Phoenix, Arizona. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Arizona.FYI, a history, culture, and current events podcast wherein we tell tales about the most interesting, wildest, and youngest of the contiguous United States. My name is Mark, and at various points in this podcast's future, I'll be joined by Dan, Karen, and for interviews by many other colorful characters from across Arizona. Arizona has long had a reputation as the last bastion of the Wild West, a rough-and-tumble state that's had unprecedented growing pains, but has always had a forward-looking and optimistic, if sometimes misguided, vision of its own future. Arizona's history is both urban and remote, modern and antique, gruesome and gritty as well as upbeat and funny. I hope you'll check out a few of our episodes and stick around to learn more about our state with us. Today we'll be discussing an event that Wikipedia gives only a single sentence. Sheriff Carl Hayden and the Beardless Boy Bandits. Just a note, in this episode and in future episodes, we'll probably be using Indian as a convenient and historically used label for the native peoples referred to in these stories, unless we can positively identify the specific tribe or communities that are involved. Most of the peoples that would have taken part in this story would have been part of the Gila River Indian community, which while historically composed of Akamela Otham, aka Pima, also includes refugee Pipash, or Maricopa, and Yuman peoples from Sacaton to Maricopa. If you have insight into this or any topic that comes up in this episode, please feel free to join the discussion at arizona.fyi slash one. In early May of 1910, train robberies were something that happened back in the old days, to your father in the Old West. Those days were decidedly over, and this was the dawn of the New West. It would only be two years until the Titanic sinks. Driving an automobile was the ultimate status symbol. Short movies were being shown during variety performances in large theaters packed with bankers and grocers and townspeople. Electric streetcars roamed the avenues of Phoenix and Tucson, shuttling post-Victorian ladies and gentlemen about their business. Arizona's eyes were fixed on a bright agricultural future in the Salt River Valley, and the prospect of putting her lawless cowboy past behind her. This here tale is the story of two boys from Oklahoma who took their fortunes into their own hands and headed west to be cowboys, and how on one fateful morning they ended up on the wrong side of a real-life game of cops and robbers that played out across the southern Arizona desert. Ernest and Oscar Woodson had come out west to find their fortunes as cattlemen, and for a time they were successful. Working all day as cowboys was mighty thirsty work, and the big city provided tempting entertainments for young men with full pockets in the form of vaudeville shows. Who could resist the advertisements in the Arizona Republic newspaper? There will be a show at the Goodwin Opera House this evening, consisting of various vaudeville stunts by the Seymour Twins and moving pictures and illustrated songs. One of the more famous of these moving pictures presented at the theaters was none other than The Great Train Robbery from 1903. Now, I don't know if these boys saw this movie here in Phoenix or back home in Oklahoma, or even at all, but what happens next is more in common with fiction than any account of the truth, and you know what they say, you just can't make this stuff up. On the morning of Tuesday the 11th of May, 1910, after withdrawing the entirety of their savings from the bank the day before, the brothers head to the illustrious Cowboy Corral, 
an auction and consignment house for cattle, horses, and other livestock at Five Points. This was the name of the neighborhood at the intersection where Grand Avenue begins to head northwest at 7th Avenue and Van Buren, just west of downtown. With the plausible story of visiting the Bartlett Herd Land and Cattle Company out east, our boys rent two horses from proprietor A.J. Fitzhugh. From there, they pick up the Maricopa and Phoenix Railway Line, the M&P, or the Arizona Eastern, as it was known to the federal government, unbeknownst to the people of Phoenix, was a spur railroad that brought passengers from Phoenix down through Tempe, known as Hayden's Ferry, until only a decade before this story, to the Union Pacific Railway Station at the town of Maricopa. When the boys reach the Gila River crossing just south of Sacatone Station, they pick out a perfect spot to stash their mounts during the next day's exploits, just as in the movie The Great Train Robbery. They then complete the trip to Maricopa and head back to Phoenix, arriving to return their horses at the Cowboy Corral by nightfall. The next morning, after enjoying a fine breakfast at the then-famous Garden City Chinese Restaurant, just about where Cityscape is today, the boys pay another visit to Mr. Fitzhugh and the Cowboy Corral. They request two horses, but not the same they had the day before. Because as you might guess, you want fresh horses when you're running from the law down in Mexico. Being unable to accommodate this request, they were given the same black and bay horses from the day previous and sent on their way. This would ultimately be a major factor of their undoing. Once more, they pass through Tempe and make their way south along the Maricopa and Phoenix Railway. This time, they stash the horses in the Gila River bottom and make their way to Maricopa on foot, a distance of about seven miles, arriving in time for the evening train back towards Phoenix. They board the train with around 16 other passengers and wait for it to pull out of the station. Now this here train is just a short spur line, but it connects to the mighty Union Pacific, which brought freight and passengers from back east to Tucson and Maricopa, and out to Gila Bend and on to Los Angeles. It was also half of the best way to get from Tucson to Phoenix. It was just this journey on that fateful evening that Attorney General Wright of the Territory of Arizona was traveling with his acquaintance, one Deputy Sheriff Sturgis of Gila County, along with his colleague Deputy and their two prisoners. All of the above were seated comfortably in the smoking car towards the front of the train, where they were enjoying cigars in conversation. Shortly after the train began moving, the boys stood and shuffled to the rear of the passenger car to begin their robbery. Oscar, the younger of the two, pulled two rented 45 caliber pistols from beneath his jacket, and with all the force of personality you could expect from a 17-year-old boy, he meekly entreated for the passengers to hold up their hands. Thinking these boys were joking, the passengers paid little attention. Ernest ordered the pocketbook from the first passenger, and finding the incredulous man too slow in retrieving it, brought the pistol butt squarely down upon his head. At the sight of the resulting spurt of blood, the remaining passengers quickly prepared their belongings for collection. The train's news agent, basically a fruit and newspaper salesman who worked for the MMP Railway, heard the meek, hold up your hands, at the back of the car, and seeing the writing on the wall, did as the boy asked. He surreptitiously raised his hands, pocketbook included, to the ceiling. But being a clever railway employee and versed in the stories of robberies past, he had the idea to quickly and quietly flip his pocketbook, containing $75, almost $1,800 in today's money, out the window. Later, when the robbers cleaned him of his valuables, they only found $4.50, which is still almost $100 today. The pocketbook was retrieved the next day by the brakeman. Coming to the middle door between the passenger and smoking car, they met with Conductor Woodcock making his initial rounds through the train cars, having just left the sheriffs and their prisoners. Woodcock, thinking these boys with pistols must be but a few more deputy sheriffs playing a joke, smiled as he brought his arms skyward in mock surprise. Ernest began to relieve him of his valuables. Behind the conductor in the smoking car, Deputy Sturgis looked on with a smile, enjoying the practical joke that this boy was playing. 
It wasn't until a pistol found its way to Deputy Sturgis's face that he realized they were serious. Sturgis slowly reached for the revolver in his coat, but at a motion from the Attorney General thought better of it. Later, they would say that drawing upon these boys would certainly cause a bloodbath in the cramped quarters. Sturgis allowed the boys to relieve him of his revolver and his pocketbook, but kept his second gun concealed. In all, he'd give up $65 of the budget afforded for transporting his prisoners, as well as a few of his own gold pieces. The Attorney General gave up only nine bucks, and the prisoners were forced to turn out their pockets with predictable results. The boys then returned to the passenger compartment while covering the door to the rear car. Conductor Woodcock smiled as the boys moved back past because he knew the brakeman Sharp was soon to arrive on his rounds lighting the lamps for the evening. Sure enough, the brakeman threw open the door and was suddenly face to face with Oscar and his twin 45s, which were shaken like a leaf as the boy bandit tried to look tough. Now son, steady your hands. I don't want to get shot by a nervous man, exclaimed the brakeman. Oscar motioned with his guns. Hold up your hands and while you're at it, signal the engineer to stop this train. Brickman Sharp put his hands up in the air and tugged twice on the cable that ran from the front of the train to the back. Somehow, the boys knew the signals and caught on to his ruse. Two's for the next station, old man. We want to stop the train now. Before the brickman could react, one of the passengers began to pull on the cable excitedly. Up in the engineer's cabin, the bell rang furiously, and the engineer brought the train to a halt. The boys jumped from the train, and pointing a revolver at the engineer, yelled that he need not keep the train stopped on their account. One of the two deputies opened fire, emptying his revolver. As the boys retreated to the river bottom, they returned three shots. When the train made it to the next station, a telegram was sent back to Maricopa where the Union Pacific superintendent immediately spent the night wiring all points, coordinating the manhunt. For the next few hours, Union Pacific Rail Superintendent Scott burned wires to Gila Bend out west, Silver Bell Mine near Globe to the east, and up to Phoenix, and even to Mexico via Tucson. Now here's where we pick up with the main cop in this game of cops and robbers, Maricopa County Sheriff Carl T. Hayden. Now if you think that name sounds familiar, you'd be right. You might know him as two times second in line for the presidency of the United States, as interim House Speaker in the United States Congress. You might have heard his reputation for quiet leadership and bipartisan compromise, leading to his nickname the third senator from every state. You might know him for his record as the longest serving member of Congress until Strom Thurmond. Or, and let's be honest here, you might just remember driving on Hayden Road in Scottsdale on your way to see the movie Spare Parts, which tells the story of four Carl Hayden High School students who beat MIT in a robot building competition. Needless to say, Mr. Hayden was a mighty important man to Arizona and the nation, and he's mighty important to the fate of our two boys, Ernest and Oscar. Upon receiving the telegram from Maricopa, Hayden organized his posse, loading himself, his deputy, and their horses on a special livestock car on the MNP train and headed south in the early morning hours. So now we've got Deputy Sturgis of Gila County and his colleague from the smoking car, who had immediately set out from Sacatone Station to chase the boys from their camp following their trail southeast towards Casa Grande. Sheriff Nelson of Pima County decided to shirk an important court date in the morning and was heading north from Tucson. Pinal County's posse was riding hard down the hill from Silverbell towards Casa Grande. Meanwhile, the Gila County Sheriff's posse began searching for the campsite after having left Maricopa going north, coming across it at first light. They sent word via Indian messenger to Sacatone Station, which was wired to Maricopa where Carl Hayden's posse had arrived. Hayden had continued to Casa Grande and rode north to Sacatone to enlist the help of the Indian villages, promising $100, $2,400 today, to anyone who materially aided in the capture of the bandits, and instructing them to arrest every white man they encountered. 
Hayden's offer was so attractive it nearly ended up putting him in chains later that morning. A few hours later, as he and Superintendent Scott were searching a grove of mesquite trees between Sacatone Indian Agency and Casa Grande, a large Indian policeman approached the pair. Scott turned to Hayden and said, Carl, I see right now where you and I get run in. In about two minutes, we'll be disarmed, strapped on the back of a horse, and dragged off to Sacatone. Fortunately, it turned out the Indian policeman was known to Scott, and the incident turned into nothing more than a funny sideline in the morning paper. Hayden's $100 offer elicited a great deal of activity around Casa Grande, and led to the discovery of the tracks of two shod horses heading southwest about three miles outside of town by Indian trackers. When asked how they knew these were the tracks of the fugitives, the trackers replied, Indian horses don't have shoes. Hayden wired his posse at Maricopa and instructed them to follow the tracks with the Indian trailers in tow. The sheriff promised he'd catch the posse up with relief later in the day and contacted hotel owner McCarthy in the town of Maricopa for the use of his automobile. McCarthy had been the butt of a whimsical newspaper article only a few months previous, which lampooned his keeping up with the Joneses feud with the owner of the only other hotel in Maricopa. In the article, it was established that McCarthy was the most reckless driver in all the territory, and this is exactly what attracted Hayden's attention. McCarthy was all too happy to oblige, and he and Sheriff Hayden loaded his car up with hay, food, and water, and, quote, flew out of Maricopa Station, tearing down all obstacles in their way. Now, I've run into some debate on the make of the car. Most accounts of this story that you'll find in modern media state that it was an Apperson Jackrabbit. I think this comes from a letter that Carl Hayden himself drafted in 1967, when he was 90 years old, five decades after the chase. All the contemporary accounts have found in newspapers describing the ordeal, along with eyewitness accounts in the article that's specifically about the day McCarthy bought the car, as well as the events surrounding his race with another hotel owner, label it as a Stoddard Dayton. All we really need to know about this is that it was a 1910 four-seater open car, little different than a horse trailer, the kind that has wooden wheels and goes awooga and putt putt putt. Most definitely, this car wasn't ready to tear across the Arizona desert in the middle of the day in late May. It overheated several times, sending McCarthy under the hood with dipstick and thermometer. As one news article put it, quote, One thing in which there seemed no doubt was that but for the McCarthy machine and the McCarthy grit, the robbers would have escaped. When the machine was working well, he drove like a very devil. When there was anything wrong, he was over it, under it, and everywhere about it, working like the Furies while great drops of perspiration poured off him. Never a word of complaint or worry came from him. Knowing the car wouldn't make it across the arroyos and the washes of the open desert, they decided to stick to the Veco Mine Road. The Veco Mine was a sizable camp which still bears that name, though the buildings are long abandoned, and which lies directly south and a little west of Maricopa. Hayden, McCarthy, and U.S. Customs Inspector Cronin finally reached Hayden's posse about 10 miles from the Veco, about 25 miles south of Maricopa at this point and offloaded the supplies that they had brought. They then decided to push on to Veckel since there wasn't any wire communication with the camp, and they couldn't warn them about the fugitives. Oscar and Ernest, being from Oklahoma and not having grown up here, seriously underestimated the importance of water in the desert. They had brought only four beer bottles, which they had refilled at a well in one of the Indian communities early that morning. They were desperate for water, and their horses were exhausted, and thus they decided to rest in a stand of Palo Verde trees near the Veckel Road to avoid the hottest part of the day. The decision by the cowboy corral operator, Mr. Fitzhugh, to give the boys the same horses they had the day before, combined with the mistreatment by the Greenhorn fugitives, put the horses in a bad way, and the boys were now stranded until the horses could recover. Around 2 p.m., they hear the putt-putt-putt of an approaching automobile. Thinking it must be a wealthy mine owner visiting his claim, 
Oscar decides to flag down the driver and ask for water. Not wanting to appear armed if it was a normal citizen, and not wanting to fight if it was the law, he had hidden his gun in his saddlebag. Oscar walked out, and the auto stopped. He called out, Y'all have any water? Which was answered with, Hands up, son! He was covered by all three of the occupants of the vehicle. Ernest heard this through the trees, and his ego decided he should make a show of it, so he came out with his rifle up, but thanks to the restraint of the officers, he had the luxury to think better of it, and dropped his weapon when covered. The boys were cuffed and loaded into the car, and after retracing the path, the posse was instructed to collect the horses and loot. Hayden headed back to Casa Grande with his prisoners in the auto, but didn't make it that far. It finally gave up the ghost, and they were stranded until they could catch one of the Indian trailers for a ride back to the train station. When they arrived back in Phoenix, Hayden actively ducked the looky-loos at the station and disembarked early, sneaking his prisoners in the back way. He later placed all credit for organizing the chase on Superintendent Scott, for catching the bandits on McCarthy's driving and U.S. Customs Inspector Cronin's intimidating presence, and the Indian community for their support and tracking abilities. Sheriff Hayden's treatment of the whole situation, which was characterized by restraint, quiet leadership, and avoidance of the spotlight, became a hallmark of his long and storied career in Congress which he gained in part by parlaying the publicity foist upon him by the nationally famous Beardless Bandits Chase. Ultimately, the boys were found with a little over $75, which would have the purchasing power of approximately $1,800 now. They had originally stolen $265 from the passengers, which is over $6,400 of value today, but it had missed most of it hidden in other pockets or in other compartments, and had dropped most of it in their initial camp due to their haste. They were arraigned on embezzling the horses from the corral in a local court, but were extradited by the federal government and eventually served three and a half years of a 10-year term in Leavenworth, Kansas. It's all about McCarthy's auto, so this is where I get the standard Dayton information from. So we know F.J. McCarthy owned the Maricopa Hotel in Maricopa, which is a very small town at this point, all of 18 people, 16 of which worked for either of the two hotels in town, which both served the Union Pacific Railway. The other hotel, the Williams House, is owned by Perry Williams. The two hotels have a spirited rivalry, and the two hoteliers are constantly one-upping each other. One day, about two months before the chase, McCarthy decides to take the train to Phoenix and returns with a Stoddard Dayton automobile, which is reported to have cost him between two dollars and $3,000, somewhere around the value of $60,000 in today's money. When he arrives back, he, in a show of modesty, tells Perry Williams that he's sorry his hotel couldn't pay enough for Williams to afford his own automobile. So not to be outdone, Williams heads to Phoenix the next day and purchases an overland from the Pratt-Gilbert Company. He comes back to Maricopa and proudly shoves it in McCarthy's face. Of course, McCarthy has to pretend to rejoice too, and tells Williams he'd like to take all kinds of trips together. Of course, Perry's overland didn't compare to the Stoddard Dayton any more than the Williams house compared to the Maricopa Hotel, but it'd do. The next day, McCarthy's Stoddard Dayton is broken down suspiciously. Whether it's the carburetor, spark plugs, or transmission, it's lost to history, Anyhow, the Overland, of course, is perfectly operable, and Perry decided that the best way to ensure a good break-in of the motor was to ride circles around McCarthy's hotel while blowing the horn to make sure the domestic animals kept out of the way. He kept up a constant honking while McCarthy went to the door, shaking his fist and telling Williams that a better road led to a place warmer than Maricopa. But Williams replied he didn't want to try any strange trails that day, and McCarthy could go right on ahead to that warmer place in his stoddard Dayton. The Stoddard was repaired in a day or two, and the two were said to have been friends, though rivals, in the automobile and hotel businesses since. The article goes on to say that Williams and McCarthy were going to organize a monster automobile meet in Maricopa, and the principal event of which would be a race between the Stoddard and the Overland. Thanks for listening, and remember, 
When you're out exploring our state, don't forget to bring us along.